Welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Mickey Badlamenti, and I'm the discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, we've modified our church schedule to help keep people safe. We currently offer on-site Sunday morning services at 9 and 11 a.m. with limited capacity, and we ask that you register ahead of time. Please visit www.rockpoint.org slash register before you join in person. That way we can save your seat. And we also live stream the 11 a.m. service on our YouTube channel. You can always find Rock Point on Facebook or visit the website for more information, including important schedule updates. And while COVID may have affected how we do church, it cannot diminish our efforts together to be the church. We look forward to connecting with you. Enjoy the podcast. If I was in my pickup truck and saw you walking down the road, I would run you down. Then, after passing over you, just to be sure I finished the job, I would throw it in reverse and run you down a second time. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your presence with us this morning. We thank you for bringing heaven to earth in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Jesus, for being truth and showing us how to live that out in this world in grace and in love. As we look at the scriptures this morning, we pray for your open hearts and that our minds will be open to hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Pastors know that, that for the most part, that people don't remember the sermons they preach. Pastors and communicators like to think that the congregants remember everything. Um, although, having said that, uh, I have reread some of my old sermons, and especially from early on, and sometimes I blush at the thought that you might remember any of those, for those who have been around for a while. Um, but for the most part, we know that people, uh, if they remember anything, um, it will be specific stories and themes, uh, particularly themes oft-repeated, which is why we repeat values uh, to our, to, that are important to our children. But what will be most remembered more than the words we say is the impact of those words, because that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Doing something in our soul, uh, doing something in the soul of an individual at a foundational level, at the spiritual level, uh, at the level of the will. Uh, when I think back to the words or message I've shared over the years uh, here at Rock Point um, and responses to them, um, there's one message in particular uh, that I've had different individuals bring up years later, surprising me with what uh, they've remembered. Uh, and it was a sermon I did in, and get this uh, for those of you who may remember any of it, uh, I did in 2007, 13 years ago, uh, on Jesus' prayer in John 17. And it's Jesus' final prayer, uh, and he's praying about the unity, uh, the oneness of all believers. I'm not going to repeat that message here, uh, but I do want to revisit today the implications of Jesus' prayer in John 17. And because I did this past week, reread those sermon notes and found myself particularly uh, in today's uh, political and cultural climate in the U.S., I found myself deflated uh, and feeling a little hopeless, wondering what the implications of that prayer mean now here in 2020. Now, before jumping into that, uh, I must confess that I'm a bit of an idealist, all right, which makes the John 17 prayer a little bit more difficult to comprehend. Let me give you an example of idealism. All right, when I was engaged to my wife, we did our pre-marriage counseling right here at Rock Point. Like all other engaged couples getting married here, um, we took a relational assessment called Prepare and Enrich. 
I would later, as a pastor here, come to be certified and trained in administering and interpreting this assessment. But at this point in my life, this is my first exposure to it. Um, Part of the assessment identifies, by how you answer some of the questions, your level of idealism to see if you are viewing your relationship through rose-colored glasses. Apparently, according to Randy, and for those of you who may be live streaming this right now as your first time uh, encountering Rock Point, Randy is our lead pastor here. Um, But he said that I was off the charts on idealism. Corey, my wife, not so much. Um, And apparently, this could be a problem. Um, So Randy addressed it straight on. Um, To answer one of the, in answer, I should say, to one of the questions on the assessment, is there anything your partner could do? And I can't remember the exact words of the rest of the question. It was something along the lines of to make you love them less or, or to cause you to question your love for your partner. But I'm pretty sure it was along the lines of, is there anything your partner could do to cause you to question your love for him or her? And of course, as the good idealist and as a Christ follower who was discipled in the ways of unconditional love, I said, no, absolutely not. There's nothing she could do to cause me to choose to stop loving her. No matter what she does, I'll always choose to love her, period, exclamation point. Man, those rose-colored glasses felt good. My wife, however, answered it, yes, absolutely there's things he can do that cause me to question my love for him, like if he had an affair or something. You bet I'm going to question my love for him. I maybe might choose to still love him through it, but you bet I'm going to question my love for him. Totally legit response, totally realistic, totally not where I was coming from. And for you fellow idealists out there, any idealists? You can raise your hand if you're live streaming too. Well, two of us, great. Um, well, yeah, I guess a bunch of realists out there. You know what it feels like as an idealist um, when your ideals get stepped on or confronted with a harsh reality. And I'm no longer, ta- I'm no longer talking about um, this exchange with my wife. We grew from that. We've had our big struggles and defeats, along with joys, blessings, and victories over the years. And by the grace of God, we just celebrated this past week 25 years of marriage. So, yes, thank you. They're clapping if you can't hear that live streaming. Yes. But, fellow idealists, you know it hurts a little, and a little part of us dies if our ideals are confronted with a reality so harsh that it seems like our ideals will never see the light of day. In fact, we don't often go from being an idealist to a realist. Idealists don't just tend to become more realistic when confronted with certain realities. When our ideals seem defeated, um, we tend to shift from idealism to cynicism which is defined as a general lack of faith in hope or in people. So I found myself, as I was rereading John 17 and rereading my sermon notes, drifting to to cynicism. I'm thankful I didn't stay there, but in order for the church to embody the prayer of John 17, it's going to require something big of us and of the church as a whole. Let's do some quick review It was the evening before Jesus' crucifixion and death, just before his betrayal and arrest. Jesus knows what's coming down the line here. And the remaining disciples, minus Judas, were gathered around Jesus. They'd already eaten what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, just before the meal. And just before the meal, the disciples were humbled, having had their feet washed by Jesus. And I want you to remember that. Because in his prayer, Jesus is going to talk about love. And when Jesus talks about love, it's not a mushy-gushy kind of love. It's a very specific kind of love that he fully embodied in that moment 
before that meal. Because after washing his disciples' feet, the disciples were so baffled that their teacher, leader, Lord, was doing this that they questioned him about it. He basically responds with, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. I'm setting an example for you here today of how you, of what you should do for each other as I have done for you. Now, as you think about that, do you think that Jesus was specifically talking about washing each other's feet? No. He wasn't. Because if he was, then we need to, if we're doing this as an example, we need to organize a lot more foot washings in our community, in our world. And that would be very interesting in a COVID-19 context, wouldn't it? He wasn't talking about that. Because he goes on in the context of that same conversation to say in John 13, 34, and 35, a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. I just showed you, and I've been showing you this these past three years, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We're getting a little ahead of ourselves this morning, but keep this passage in your mind, both the first part and the second part. But when Jesus talks about love, it's a very specific kind of love. As I have loved you, that he modeled all through his ministry, and it's characterized by serving others and sacrifice. So let's go back to John 17. Jesus is talking with them after this foot washing. We get a peek at their dinner conversation in chapters 13 through 16. And then Jesus begins to pray. And in this prayer, we get a sense of Jesus' primary concerns in his final moments on this earth. John 17 starts with Jesus praying for himself, and then he prays for his disciples. But then look at John 17, 20. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning his disciples, because he just finished praying for them, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who is that? He names us. We who claim to be followers of Christ are those that have believed in Christ through the message of the disciples. Jesus is praying directly for you and me. He prays that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me. Again, it sounds repetitive, doesn't it? Well, he does it again three times. And I've loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see the glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. I've made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. In 2007, I said, this prayer haunts me because it seems impossible to embody. In 2020, where I stand now, I feel like this prayer, while still haunting, it confounds me. The gist of my 2007 message was first addressing what is repeated three times in the final third of this prayer, that we may be one. Jesus here, of course, is praying for unity. But let me back up for just a moment to show you how important and essential this is. You can read the beginning of John 17 on your own later, but in the beginning of the prayer, verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays directly to the Father on behalf of himself. He's praying that God's name will be glorified through him. Second part of the prayer, he shifts to praying for his disciples that were with him in that moment. And in verse 11, you can read it with me, he prays, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I'm coming to you, right? I'm leaving, he's saying, but they're still going to be on this earth So what is the one thing 
that Jesus is going to pray for his disciples? Is it power? Maybe strength? That would be a good one. Prosperity would be even better. Comfort? Resilience? What is it that Jesus is going to pray for? What is so important that this becomes Jesus' final prayer? Holy Father, here it comes. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me. Whew. Okay. Protection. Thank God. I can handle protection. I want protection. Right? I mean, who doesn't want to be protected? And it doesn't really seem to require a lot for me, does it? Protection is what someone else does on your behalf. I can handle that. Well, hold on to your seats here, all right? Because protection in the way that you and I are probably thinking about it right now doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Remember, at this point in Jesus' prayer, he's praying for his disciples, right? And from what we know of history, all of the disciples were either killed, persecuted, or exiled for following Jesus and carrying out his mission. They certainly weren't being protected in the traditional sense of how you and I accept that word. So here is where Jesus' prayer turns to the purpose for which Jesus is praying for protection. And anytime you see the words, so that, it points to purpose, And you're about to see a series of so that's all the way to the end of this prayer. Jesus prays it in verse 11. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. The whole purpose of God's protection here is to protect our oneness, our unity. And what I explored in my 2007 sermon that I don't have time to get into here today but want to briefly highlight is that the unity he describes here reflects the unity of the Godhead. The Trinity, because he says, and he'll say this several times, so that they may be one as we are one. That the disciples of his would have oneness the same way the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. That's a high call. I mean, the oneness of the Godhead has confounded biblical scholars for centuries. In fact, accusations have been made against Christians from the beginning that they are, a, are not, I should say, a monotheistic religion. In other words, that they don't worship one God. And we can't get into this right now except to say the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And Jesus is praying for protection of that mysterious oneness for his disciples. But why? Why is this so important? Let's go forward again and reread verse 20. Here, Jesus is praying for those of us who call ourselves Christ followers today. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. And then he goes into another series of so that's. Verse 21 that all of them may be one, Father, as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. The prayer is clear. Jesus prays for his disciples' protection. What does he want protected? Their unity. And then he prays for us, here now again, praying for our unity to reflect the unity of the Godhead. For what purpose? Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's its purpose. Again, in verse 23, look at it there. Then, and the word then is another so that. Several other Bible translations actually use the words so that right there. So that the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. It's clear that Jesus' prayer for oneness has very little to do with us as individuals, but everything to do with what he wanted to do through us as a community of followers. So hold on to that, too, because we're going to come back to this whole idea of individual versus community a little bit later. But the whole point is that this oneness is going to display to the world that Jesus was sent by the Father and that we are loved even as the Father has loved his Son 
Jesus Christ. This is, this is so clear to me from this player that the main vehicle for the good news of the gospel, for the countercultural, upside-down ways of the kingdom to impact the kingdoms of this world, is for the church to be one. The oneness of the body of Christ is the main vehicle for the spread of the good news. Jesus' prayer gets echoed, or I should say answered, later in the New Testament in the book of Revelations as it begins to talk about the future beyond where we sit right now. Revelation 7, 9 says this, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation. And the word in the original Greek here for nation is ethnos, which does not refer to nation states as we think about it today. Ethnos is the word, like it sounds, referring to unique ethnic groups and cultures, which is so much more all-encompassing than nation states. Every ethnos, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There's this picture that's described that way. And this is the culmination of Jesus' prayer. Jesus praying this. My church is going to be so diverse. My church is going to be so international. My church is going to have so many different languages, so many different colors, so many different cultures represented. If there is any way, Jesus is praying, any way they could remain one, protect that. I think you get the point, and I need to move on. But we know that this is mission critical. No one in the church world that I know disagrees with these powerful statements. The real question is, how to apply Jesus' words and how we live these words in our churches. And from my perspective, we're really struggling with this. In a world that is more divisive than it has ever been, at least in my lifetime, we've allowed the ways of the world to seep into the ways of the kingdom. We've allowed the impact to go in a reverse direction. I, I don't think we're doing too well on the oneness front right now. Now, for those of you who have been listening closely, you've probably been wondering, what on earth was that whole thing about at the beginning? If I was in my pickup truck and I saw you walking down the road, I would run you down. Then after passing over you, just to be sure I finished the job, I would throw it in reverse and run you down a second time. My undergraduate degree is in biblical studies and philosophy, and in 1993, our school invited a man named Brutz Metzger to speak to our department, which was a pretty big deal for both students and professors or anyone involved in and uh, Bible translation or textual criticism because Bruce uh, was a professor at Princeton Theological Seminary and is known as one of the greatest New Testament scholars of the 20th century. Uh, he was 79 or 80 years old uh, at the time when I met him. Um, his specialty is New Testament Greek. Um, his list of achievements is prolific. Um, but I was particularly impressed that he had been an editor of the United Bible Society's standard Greek New Testament, which is a starting point for nearly all modern New Testament translations. And I had just been required to buy it for my Greek class. I remember listening to him and opening the cover of that Greek Bible and being like, holy cow, his name is in there. I better listen to this guy. Um, he talked about Bible translations, the academic scrutiny, the, the, the process involved in getting that Bible that is in your hands to be as true and authentic to the original languages and manuscripts and how rigorous that process is and a team of different people from different training and perspectives that are a part of that. And he talked about some of the challenges of getting it just right and the debate around some of it. But it really built my confidence um, in some of our modern translations of the Bible. But what I remember most was him reading a letter from someone, not someone on the team of editors, um, but someone else who didn't quite like how he was translating. In 1993, this is before email and social media. 
Bruce Metzger died in 2007 at the age of 93. I jumped online to see if anybody had run him over. Thank God he died of old age, right? Now, you might hear that story and think, how ridiculous. You're going to do violence on somebody or break unity over some minor word you feel is mistranslated? Okay, great. I'm glad you think that. We're on the same page. But what about when it comes to something that is important to you? I mean, what is this unity that is being talked about in John 17? Is it political unity? There, I did it. I brought up politics. Which, frankly, the safest place to talk about our differences in politics should be in the church. But we Christians are failing there, too. Is John 17 after political unity? Are we all supposed to think the same on political issues in the church? That's certainly not the case. Not when Jesus is calling all ethnos to gather in his kingdom. Even when it comes to the 12 disciples, many biblical scholars believe that there would have been a wide spectrum of political beliefs about how to deal with Rome, the government occupying their land at the time. I mean, I have to believe that Matthew, a former tax collector for the Romans, and Simon the Zealot, who, if the word zealot is in reference to the zealot political movement of the time, which had some very specific views about an uprising against Rome, I have to believe those two had some interesting conversations about the way to deal with Rome. Probably some heated debate, which is good and healthy. But we don't get any inclination that they disrupted their unity by attacking each other's devotion to following Jesus. Which, particularly when it comes to politics, is where we tend to, uh, was where we tend to attack first before debating the argument itself. I can't tell you how many times I've seen this posted on social media from one Christian to another Christian in a political debate. How can you be a Christian and? How can you be a Christian and support this person or that person? How can you be a Christian and support this policy or that policy? Instead of having a much needed discourse about policy and politics, the attacker throws into the debate the other person's devotion to Jesus. And then it just devolves into insults from there. I've experienced this myself, and I've observed it, experienced with several of my Christian friends across the political spectrum. It's disheartening. So let me offer another approach this morning. Maybe we should consider rephrasing those attacks and instead ask questions that open up true dialogue. Maybe we should listen first, and not so that we earn the right to be heard so that we can move forward at that point in our demolishing of our so-called enemy, which is weird even to call another Christian our enemy, but maybe we we should listen so we can learn. Maybe there's something we can actually learn in that moment, and there's this opportunity to learn together with our political opponent. So when we're about to enter into something that may become heated, I encourage you to first try to find a way to have a face-to-face conversation, humanize the encounter, But if it demands an online discussion, rephrase your question so it sticks to the topic at hand and doesn't judge the heart of the person, which is God's job, not your job or my job. Instead of asking something that questions the person's integrity as a Christ follower, try to ask something like this. Can you help me understand, which is a good way to start out any question, frankly, but can you help me understand how this view aligns with your devotion to Christ? You already assume that they are one with you, right? That they are one in Christ with you. It's not your job to question that. What you're trying to understand is how they, as a brother and sister in Christ, 
and I want to come back to this idea later in Christ, but how they align their views with their devotion to Christ. Now you're about to enter into a dialogue that brings unity, even if it doesn't bring agreement. Let me give you one more example of this, and then we're going to move, we have to move on. But if you get a chance to read about National Community Church, then do it. Um, it's an Assemblies of God church in Washington, D.C. I've been fascinated for years with the leadership of their pastor, Mark Batterson. He's done an incredible job of protecting the oneness of this church. And most members of this church are employed in some form or fashion in the political realm, shaping policy or working for senators or congresspersons on Capitol Hill. And they often work on opposite sides of the aisle and have radically different ideas about how to make the world a better place. Now, one of my college roommates uh, attends that church uh, with his family, and since we li- now live only a couple hours from D.C., I visited uh, my friend and his family and, and visited their church. And I want to read to you an excerpt of an interview of some small group leaders in their church named Aaron and Juliana. Juliana invited their small group, um, which had been together for some time, building community, sharing their spiritual journeys, um, helping each other move, sharing holidays together, all the things that small groups uh, tend to do. But she invited them the group over her house to watch the presidential debates together. This is in 2012. Remember, these are sharp, well-informed, passionate young professionals, some of who have dedicated their careers to a particular uh, political party. But all the things that could have gone wrong didn't. One of the group leaders said that two hours after one of the debates ended, um, they were still together because two individuals in the small group were totally going at it one-on-one on a particular topic. Of course, they didn't solve that issue after two hours, but what about the tension, right, that was created between the two of them and the group? According to Aaron, the two people that were having that debate are still friends today, and they tease one another about that evening. When the leaders were asked this question, what is the key to unity in a group with such diverse political perspectives Juliana replied, the key to unity amidst a lot of Capitol Hill staffers who work for politically diverse members of Congress has been close personal relationships within the group and understanding what it means to be one in Christ, she says. If there's one thing I want to prioritize, it's bringing people together. Most often that looks like creating the space for that to happen in my own home. It means having Democrats and Republicans over for dinner and watching a presidential debate together. And she goes on, also as a leader, maintaining unity means I'm responsible for being honest with group members. Politics is tough, and I don't have it all figured out. There aren't always black and white answers. Sometimes there is just grace. As staffers, sometimes the policy recommendations we give are shot down or become law or get messy when it's my boss versus their boss in media headlines. And then she says, unity is hard in the church. It is even harder when you have political opinions thrown into the mix. It can get awkward, but we want to be known not by the title on our business card or our political affiliation or who we work for, but by our love for one another. I love it. So, what is this unity in John 17 then? If it isn't political unity or political uniformity, what is it? Is it doctrinal or theological unity? Again, No. Let me be clear here before we go to this next section. Truth is truth, right? That's a profound statement, isn't it? Maybe we should stop there and move on. But truth is truth. To those who don't see truth as absolute, that statement isn't as simple as it sounds. But if something is true, it's true whether or not you acknowledge it being true. 
And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So you want to know the truth? Pursue Jesus and the ways of the kingdom that he so often discussed in the gospel. So what I'm about to say is not in conflict with that. But read with me 1 Corinthians 13, 12. It says this, For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. I find it really interesting that Paul says this in his letter to the church uh, in Corinth, right after discussing in pretty great detail what the love of Christ looks like in practice. We call 1 Corinthians 13 what? For those like, yes, the love chapter. I heard you guys on the live stream. Yes, you said it too. And it's often uh, read at weddings. But Paul really had been discussing in the previous paragraphs of this letter, unity and diversity in the church at Corinth. And then he begins describing our knowledge of God as incomplete or partial. And some scholars suggest uh, that he had in mind Corinth's famous bronze mirrors known for their imperfect reflections. So in our finite world, we're never going to be able to fully comprehend the infinite. Right? But the day will come, Paul is saying, the day will come. Until then, as we try to wrap our finite words, theologies, doctrines around the infinite, he's saying, let love reign. What kind of love? The love Jesus modeled, as I have loved you, and the love Paul just described in 1 Corinthians 13, which you can read later on your own. Again, I wish we could dig deeper into uh, what this love looks like in practice, but I do want to recommend a book called Regrace, subtitled, What the Shocking Beliefs of the Great Christians Can Teach Us Today. Not only will it be educational, but it will help you learn grace, uh, which is a bedrock to unity. In it, Frank Viola, the author, talks about the beliefs of several of the heroes of evangelical Christianity, from C.S. Lewis to John Calvin to Billy Graham and more. And he talks about some areas in their theology that don't seem to jive with the mainstream and may be even surprising or shocking uh, to some of us. His point here, though, is not to drag these heroes down as much as it is to remind us to give grace, remembering that we're all in process and we're all on a journey to understanding truth and recognize that if the greats don't always get it right, then you probably don't either, nor do I. So, how do we walk in unity with deep theological differences? I love this story in the book. John Wesley and George Whitefield, prominent uh, clergymen and theologians of their day, had deep disagreements and often sparred with each other in uh, public and in print uh, because they were on opposite sides of a theological debate uh, on the issue of our free will versus God's sovereignty. Now, no need to get into that right now, but just know that there wasn't a middle ground for them, all right? And they vigorously disagreed. Such were their differences that someone once asked Whitefield if he thought he'd even see John Wesley, his theological opponent, if he'd even see him in heaven. Here's Whitefield's reply. I fear not. I fear not. For he shall be so near the eternal throne, and we, at such a distance, will hardly be able to see him. <laughs> what grace! What grace! What love! I just love it. What a mature response. He, might be, he will be so close to the throne, us so far away, we won't be able to see him. This is his opponent, and he raises him to that status. Whitefield is recognizing the place of another servant of God in the kingdom, despite their deep theological differences. That's protecting oneness. So important is this oneness that there's a word for the breaking of it in the New Testament. 
It's heresy. We often think of heresy as false doctrine or false teaching, but it isn't. The Bible does discuss false teaching, and it does call out and address false teachers. And false teachers can be heretics, but so can those who teach the truth. According to Vine's Expository Dictionary, the Greek word for heresy denotes a choosing. The choice, says Vine, is an opinion that leads to a division or formation or formation of a sect. It properly denotes a predilection either for a particular truth or a perversion of one. So a heretic, in essence, is a person who causes divisions, dissensions, or factions. So when it comes to truth and theology, when it comes to these things, it is important for us to get it right, to do the hard work to understand it and get it right. But let's learn from Whitefield and honor the image of God in those with whom we disagree. So if it isn't political or theological uniformity that John 17 is talking about, what is it? It is this. It's unity of purpose. John 17 is talking about unity of purpose. And the disciples did this. It's amazing what was accomplished through them. They were a small, persecuted, marginalized group. These are people who had no military. They claimed no, no territory. They had no authority except what was given them, to them from heaven above. But in terms of Rome or the local Hebrew leaders, there certainly wasn't any authority being given to them. The Romans thought this little band of Christ followers was a joke, right? They just killed their leader. The disciples have no political power, no political standing whatsoever. And yet, not only did their movement survive, it thrived, and it ends up shaping Western civilization. How? How did that happen? There's not a lot of stories that have that much influence from that kind of a group. How? Because oneness changed the world. And the world got to see the love of Jesus and the love of the Father through the unifying love of these disciples and this small group of Christ followers. The world got to see Jesus the way he was meant to be seen. After the death and resurrection of Jesus, the disciples went with one purpose, to make disciples of all nations, all ethnos. They went with one message. Jesus is the one who has come to reverse the order of things and bring the kingdom of God to earth and lay down his life to redeem us. And one command, love each other the way that they had seen Jesus love them. And it changes the trajectory of history. It's pretty simple. We complicate it. In our political and theological discourse, we run the risk as the body of Christ of being divided over some very important issues. But though important, they cannot and should not supersede the one purpose that Jesus has called us together. I said at the beginning that I don't think we're doing very well these days on this whole idea of oneness. In order for the church to embody this prayer, it's going to require something big of us. And the reason I said that is because the love of Christ requires us to be self, uh, self-giving and sacrificial. But where can you start? I'd start by just taking active steps and putting yourself in proximity to a brother or sister in Christ that you may have deep theological or political differences with and learn to love them as Jesus demonstrated. Practice it. You don't have to agree with them, but serve them. Carry their burdens. Look for an opportunity to learn with them. Honor the image of God in them. This is your opportunity to disagree politically or theologically, yet love 
unconditionally. And then let's just see where it goes. Now, some of you may be thinking, Rick, you keep talking about how we are to treat Christ followers, and John 17 seems to be focusing in on the unity of the body of Christ. So, can I then continue to insult and demolish my secular opponents with comments like libtard or right-wing nut? No. And with that, I'll just quickly point to the teaching of Jesus to love our enemies. We are to recognize and honor the image of God in all of his creation. When Jesus said to love each other as I have loved you, he didn't limit that to those who confess Jesus as their Lord and Savior. In fact, when he taught us to love our neighbor and the local lawyer asks him, well, uh, who exactly is our neighbor? Um, Can you define that for us? Jesus goes into a story that we're familiar with, the Good Samaritan story, where the Samaritan, an enemy and much hated ethnic group of the Jews, becomes the hero of the story. It's as if Jesus was saying, look, there really is no line between neighbor and enemy, all right, where you can choose to move away from the command to love to fostering hate. He's clear. Love as I have loved. So I want to close with this idea that I feel brings us together um, and may help us move from who we are as individuals, you, your thoughts, your beliefs, your cultural identities, who makes you, you, to becoming one with a community. We as Christians within an American culture often encourage people to invite Jesus into their hearts. It's been the dominant form of invitation to faith in America over the past several decades. It's important. Um, I remember when my son um, was a child and he invited Jesus into his life and he told me about it. And then he started, as he's telling me about it, he started rolling his tummy and like shaking his torso. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, Jesus is inside me. And he's going, whoa. I'm like, okay. I remember at that time thinking, uh, we might need to find some new language for this idea here. But there's nothing wrong with this idea, but it's only one facet of the gospel message. And it can assume that the Christian life is primarily about asking Jesus to take up residence within the various parts of our inner life, which is good. But let me read to you from uh, Dr. Snodgrass, a professor of New Testament studies in Chicago. And he points out that there's nothing theologically wrong with this invitation. In fact, in his studies of the Apostle Paul, he has found that there are five places in the New Testament where the language of Christ in us or in me is used. But when you look at the larger picture, there is an imbalance. Because when the Apostle Paul wrote about the nature of Christian faith, he most frequently talks about how we are to be in Christ. And that phrase, in Christ, is used 164 times. So if we're told that Christ can come in us five times, but we are told to be in Christ 164 times, where should the emphasis fall? Snodgrass says this, if Christ is only in you, then how big is Christ? Not very big, and you can tuck him away when you don't need him. But if you and all others are in Christ, as well as all of creation, then how big is Christ? If our view of Christianity is limited to Christ being in me or in us, we will never have the theological resources to join him in his primary work of reconciliation. But if our view is expanded to see faith as fundamentally about being in Christ, our framework changes. Our, and I love this phrase, our very identity is seen through the lens of being joined to Christ. And then we look to participate in the kingdom work Jesus is always doing. That's unity of purpose. May we, be one, may, may we be one in Christ. This is our chance to shine in a divided world.
Let's pray John 17 together. Lord, protect our unity. May we be one just as you, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. May we be brought to complete unity so that the world will know that you love them, that you were sent by the Father, and that you've come to be with us and to heal our broken world. Amen. You know, Rick, when you started off with that comment about the truck, I really wasn't sure where you were going, and I had this fleeting thought of whether or not I should go out and check his tires just to make sure everything was okay. But, you know, that quickly passed because I know Rick. I know Rick. I love Rick. I have a relationship with Rick, and many of us here have that same. And, and so when you do, you listen to somebody, and you reach for what it is they're trying to to communicate and you understand. And I hope that's what we were doing today because this is a deep subject. Deep, what he was reaching for. And don't just grab onto something simple and quick because you're going to miss it. Uh, let, let's be clear something, especially for those of you who maybe are tuning online, just getting to know us maybe through this last season, but even for those who have, you know our church. Rick communicated this. We will always stand on the essential truths of Christ. The Father, Son, and Spirit, as he prayed in their name, the, the Trinity, the, the gospel, Jesus' death on the cross, his, his, his resurrection from the dead, salvation by his grace through what he did, and our faith in that alone, nothing we can add to that. We will always stand on those things. We can do no other. But we will always even do that humbly, not, not arrogantly, not angrily. And that was the real gist of the message today. This is a divided, divided world. Where will the world look to see something different, something better? They're watching. They're wondering, I think, even in their confusion at times. But more importantly, God is watching. He's watching the whole world, but he's watching his church. And I think he is wondering if we will demonstrate a love precisely at the times when there are differences. That is the real mark of whether or not somebody understands the love in the heart of God. May we be worthy of that. Why don't we stand together and we'll pray as we do. I'll just remind you there will be somebody out by the prayer area. If you need prayer, step over there. You can talk to God with them, lift something up together. And also uh, a reminder to all of you, DBI is open. We hope to maybe see you at a, a class there as well, okay? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we appeal to you, God, not with a desperation, but with a true sense of our dependence. We know how badly we need you in this because the reality is if we search our hearts deeply, I think each and every one of us know at some point we have made a statement very similar to the one Rick quoted at the beginning of this. We have held that kind of anger in our hearts, and it doesn't display you. It's not from your heart, certainly not, because you looked at those even who hated and wanted to kill you, and you loved them to the end. Help us, Lord, to understand what that means. Help us to reflect that to this world, that we may, that the world may know that we are your followers because we have love for one another and we love the world like you so love the world. Help us to do that today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.